0: You may be seated. Well, if you would take your copy of the Word of God and turn to Psalm chapter 103. This is the third ser- sermon in a sermon series this year on the doctrine of God's providence. Brother Drew gave you a handout of a review from those first two sermons uh, for your aid and help in remembering. And unfortunately, we don't have time to go through that this morning because Psalm 103 is too exciting. So if you could turn to Psalm 103, and the title of this sermon is A Providential Barrage of Blessing. And this morning in particular, we're going to be looking at the application of the doctrine of providence to our lives, to the lives of believers and to the lives of unbelievers. So Psalm 103 of David. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. Now, our Father, we would ask that the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us in this hour, and that through the preaching of your word, the struggling saint, the discouraged saint, would be built up. We pray that if there be those among us who are unrepentant and in their sins, that the Holy Spirit would pierce their soul with the Word of God and bring repentance and faith, and that the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted so that all present would be able to say, Bless the Lord, O my soul. For we do pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Theodore Roosevelt, Jr., in his final year at Harvard University, was seen doing a very strange thing by his classmates. This was during uh, the winter months, and he was seen roaming the woods at night outside of his apartment. Now this went on for a number of weeks, and those who saw that couldn't understand why he was doing what he was doing. They knew that Theodore Roosevelt was kind of a weird fellow, but they didn't know the context. The context was... He had confessed his affection to a young woman named Alice Lean about six months earlier and had asked her to marry him, and she had not reciprocated. Hence his anxiety that could only be massaged by pacing the woods late at night. Now, we have a similar dilemma when we approach Psalm 103. If we just look at the psalm by itself, we'll get an encouraging word, but it would be better to look at the context So we can get the full understanding. Old Testament scholar O. Palmer Robertson has called the context of book 4 of the Psalter, which Psalm 103 is in book 4 of the Psalter, as the maturity of Israel in exile. The theological context of book 4 of the Psalter and of Psalm 103 is the maturity of Israel in exile. The exile was horrific for Israel, Listen to Lamentations chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. This is a prayer. See, O Lord, and look, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring, the infants who were born healthy? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? On the ground and the streets lie young and old. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered, not sparing. The exile was horrific for Israel. And Yahweh had warned Israel about this through Moses. He had said in Deuteronomy chapter 30, If your heart turns away and you will not listen, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. And Israel did just that. And so Yahweh, in faithfulness to the covenant executed the curses, and Israel was banished into exile. But, and for the people of God, that's a holy but. Wrath would not be the final word. Even in exile, the Lord had promised that if you will return to me, I will return to you. In fact, he had promised that by virtue of a new covenant, he would cause his people to return to him. So, understood in its context... Psalm 103 is a corporate meditation of the people of Israel in exile. Psalm 103 is a corporate meditation of the people of Israel in exile. Psalm 103 is a meditation of a people who have been struck down by the providence of God. Now, all of this sounds very negative, and it was, but when you read Psalm 103, Do you get any hint of negativity in the psalm? No. Why? Because the purpose of Psalm 103 is to instruct us how to deal with God when His ways seem to hurt us. The purpose of Psalm 103 is to instruct us how to deal with God when His ways seem to hurt us. Our newborn son has these fussy, turned happy rhythms down to a science now that he's two months old. So typically what happens is he'll wake up from a nap and he'll erupt into a volley of screams and dad will pick him up and try to console him and he'll have none of it. So then I'll give the great handoff to my wife and then he will stop crying because he knows he's about to get a meal. Now if my son only had the ability, the intellect, to change his perspective, if he could only see the big picture, if he could only remember, wait a second, every time I scream and I'm upset, mom takes care of me. It all gets better. If he could only change his perspective, that's the same with us. If we could only change our perspective when God providentially brings difficulty into our lives... Our cries would turn to praise. And that's exactly what David is trying to do in Psalm 103. He is trying to change our perspective. He's trying to help us realize the providential barrage of blessing that is ours who know the Lord. So let's look at this in the text. First, in verses 1 through 5, David barrages us with Yahweh's sufficiencies. David barrages us with Yahweh's sufficiencies. Charles Spurgeon once recounted a story of a church he was uh, pastoring. I think this was before he went to the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And he said that they had regular corporate prayer meetings and that these prayer meetings usually started the way most do. They were pretty slow and stiff. And he said there were a few brothers that would get warmed up as they prayed. So their faith would start to get warmed up, and they would warm the whole room up until at the end of the prayer meeting, Charles Spurgeon would say, be careful when you go home because the Spirit of God has been in our midst this evening. And that's what David is doing here. David is warming himself up. He is barraging himself with the Lord's sufficiencies. Look at verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. But he doesn't stop there. He barrages himself. It's not enough. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And he barrages himself, not generally, but particularly. With what? Verse 2b. Forget not all his benefits. He reminds himself of the benefits or better translated, the sufficiencies of the Lord. And he goes to list these in verses 3 through 5. These are the Lord's sufficiencies, and they belong to David because David knows the Lord. He goes on in verse 3, he says, The Lord who forgives all your iniquity. The Lord God Almighty forgives all the iniquity of his servants. How? How? Because the blood of his son was slain upon the tree. And that blood is sufficient to forgive any and all sin. Past, present, future. There's not a remembrance of them. There's not even the shred of a memory of them to God. He does not remember our sins. He forgives them. David goes on. Who heals all your diseases. Now this verse has been... Misunderstood by the prosperity gospel, immunity from physical disease is not promised here. But we don't need to go to the other ditch either. David is pointing out a perfection about God, that the Lord is life itself and death cannot reign in his presence. And it is the bent of Yahweh's nature to heal the ailments of his people. I've heard it said like this before. Healing the ailments of God's people is a temptation that the Lord can hardly resist. Healing the ailments of God's people is a temptation that the Lord can hardly resist. This doesn't mean that we'll never be sick in this life because if the Lord tarries, the ultimate sickness will take all of us in this room. But it does mean that the Lord will heal all our diseases, not in this life, but in the next life. And I think David recognized that connection because he goes on to say, who redeems your life from the pit. And God will ultimately do that on the day of the resurrection. And on that day, we will cry out, O Lord God, you heal all my diseases. You redeem my life from the pit. David goes on, he says, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. A better translation would probably be uh, surround, that the Lord surrounds us with steadfast love and mercy. What what are those things? What, What is steadfast love and mercy? Steadfast love is the Lord's covenant commitment to his people. Steadfast love is the Lord's vow to us. That he will carry us through this life and into the next to himself. The Lord is stubborn about this vow. He will fulfill it. And his mercy is his compassion. It's his feeling towards his people. It's not as if the Lord says, I'm going to vow to love these people, but I, I really don't want to. No. His compassion, the Lord immerses himself entirely in that vow. The Lord Lord does it with all his heart and with all his soul. And David says that his servants are surrounded by this. I've heard it said like this before, that the Lord's steadfast love and mercy are the twin hounds of heaven that chase down God's people all the days of their life. We're surrounded by it, and nothing can come in between it. And then he concludes, he says, Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. These are the sufficiencies of the Lord. And they belong to David because he was the Lord's servant. He knew the Lord. David is preaching these sufficiencies to himself. And if we understand the context, Israel in exile, in the midst of providential difficulty, was preaching these things. To their selves. They were preaching to their soul. And David is telling us, you need to preach these things to your soul. Now, why? Why would David need to preach to himself? Why would exiled Israel need to preach to themselves? Why do you need to preach to yourself? Well, I have a feeling that David was a lot like us because he was prone to forget. Because his soul was prone to be discouraged and cast down. And so David is stirring himself up. He's preaching to his own soul. Don't miss the logic of the text here. David is saying, when your soul is cast down, when providence bruises you... Preach the Lord's sufficiencies to your own soul. Do not forget. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Spiritual Depression, wrote, Do you not realize that most of your difficulty in life comes from listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And he went on to write, he said, The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself that's what David is doing here. And that's what he would have us do. We must barrage ourselves with the Lord's sufficiencies. Brothers and sisters, learn how to preach to yourself. Secondly, in verses 6 through 18, David paints for us the Lord's illustrious deliverances. In verses 6 through 18, David paints for us the Lord's illustrious deliverances. David's focus is gradually moving outward. So he first starts by preaching to himself and remembering the Lord's benefits to him personally. Now he's moving outward and he's looking at the corporate benefits. These are the benefits that belong to all of God's people. In the theological center of verses 6 through 18, is verse 8. Look at verse 8. The Lord, Yahweh, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is the theological center of this section. And this is actually almost verbatim what the Lord had declared about himself in Exodus 34, verse 6. We won't read it this morning. You can go there yourself. But the Lord descends in the cloud And he declares to Moses his character, and in verse six, this is what he says about himself: that he is merciful and gracious, that he is slow to anger, that he abounds in steadfast love. And then, in verses six and seven, David is looking back to the to the Exodus event. He says, "The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed." He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. So what David is doing right here is he is looking at this confession of the Lord's character and he's tying it to the Lord's deliverance in the Exodus. And what he is saying is, the Lord delivers like this because he is like this. The Lord delivers in this way because the Lord is this way. David is saying there's a certain predictability to how Yahweh is going to act towards his people because he is the kind of God that he is. But David doesn't just keep this in the abstract. From verses 9 through 18. he paints for us four pictures that bring this truth to life, that this is how Yahweh is. So first, in verses 9 through 10, he paints a courtroom setting. He says, "...the Lord, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities." You can't see it in the English translation, but in the Hebrew, these are legal terms that are being used. So David is painting a courtroom setting, and Israel is in the dock, and Yahweh is sitting as judge. And Yahweh is accusing Israel of violating the terms of the covenant. They're in exile. They've broken covenant with God. You know, it's one thing when Satan accuses... But what do you do when God accuses? You remember what David says that God is a gracious judge. We often think only Satan accuses. God accuses. But he accuses that he may bring to repentance. And that's what David is saying here that God, even in his accusation to Israel, is a gracious judge. The second picture he paints is in verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, David looks to the stars, and in verse 12, he looks at the horizons. In verse 11, he looks at the stars and says, Just as the stars tower over the earth, so the Lord's love towers over those who fear him. And in verse 12, he looks to the east and he looks to the west. And he says, just as that is an immeasurable distance, so the Lord has separated our sins from us that far. And as I read one commentator, if you look to the east, you can't also be looking to the west. When the Lord looks at your sins, He does not look at you. And when the Lord looks at you, He does not look at your sins. He has separated you from them. Third... In verses 13 and 14, David looks at the tenderness of a father to his children. And he says, the Lord is like that to those who know him. He's tender like a father. And then fourth, in verses 15 through 18, David looks at the lifespan of plants, of grass and of flowers. And he says that the lifespan of men is like that. A flower may grow up in a field and be absolutely beautiful only to be destroyed by the scorching sun the next day or to be uprooted by a storm. So David looks at that and says that's what the lifespan of men is like. But then he contrasts it with with the lifespan of the Lord's covenant. He says in verse 17, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting so though the lifespan of men may be so short, the Lord's covenant reaches back an eternity past to election. It reaches down into this present age, and it goes forward unto glory. So in verses 9 and 10, David shows us a gracious judge. And verses 11 and 12, David shows us a vast and mighty judge. Salvation. In verses 13 and 14, David shows us a tender father. And in verses 15 through 18, David shows us an enduring covenant. Now, why does David spill all this ink on pictures? Couldn't he have just stated the theological truth of verse 8? the great confession of the Lord's character and left it to that? Why does he need to draw not just one or two or three, four pictures of this truth for us? Well, John Trumbull was an accomplished American painter, and he was commissioned by Congress to paint the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And John Adams had, in his usual way, lectured Trumbull saying, make sure that the picture that you paint is accurate. Don't, don't deceive. Don't, don't exaggerate. Make sure it's accurate. Well, Trumbull uh, painted a colossal painting. It was 12 by 18 feet, and it was entirely inaccurate. Um, the picture that he painted of the signing of the declaration actually never happened. Why did he go to all that trouble? Well, because he wanted the importance of the event to stick. Now, David is not inaccurate like John Trumbull was. But David does want these truths about the Lord to stick. It's not enough sometimes to have an abstract definition. Sometimes it's not enough to just read the definition in your theology textbook. Sometimes you need pictures Because pictures make it stick. What David is saying is he wants you to to remember these things about the Lord. David wants you to walk out the front door and look at the sky. He wants you to look at the horizons when you're driving. He wants you to look at a tender father. And he wants you to look at the brevity of your garden flowers. And he wants you to think about the Lord. And his illustrious deliverances. Now, if the Lord's deliverances are this beautiful, colorful, exhilarating, it begs the question how do you know that you are a recipient of this deliverance? How do you know that you've partaken of the Lord's deliverances? Well, David identifies them. In verse 11, he says, So great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. The Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember His precepts to do them. The Lord Jesus taught the same truth in John chapter 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So who are the recipients of this deliverance? Well, Those who fear the Lord and keep his commandments. Now, is David and is the Lord Jesus teaching that we receive God's love based on what we do? No. But they are teaching that it is the repentant and believing who receive the love of God. It is the repentant and believing who receive the love of God. So you, this morning, must answer this question. Are you repenting of your sins and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not talking about you have your life together. I'm not talking about you're perfectly sanctified. I'm talking about the people that cry out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm talking about the people who know that they are defiled in body and soul and they cry out, Lord, cleanse me from my sins. Are you repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you are, then David is identifying you. You are a recipient of this exhilarating deliverance. In other words, these pictures that he painted about the Lord, this is how the Lord is to you. And that is a great cause for encouragement. But... If you are not repenting of your sins and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have no part in this deliverance. You are not a recipient of the love of God. You are currently under the wrath of God. You have set yourself to war against the living God, and the living God has set himself to war against you. So if that is you... Can't your stubborn heart see what you're missing? Look how exhilarating this God is. Look how wonderful His deliverance is for His people. If you will not repent and believe today, you have a stiff forehead and a stubborn heart. But if you are repentant and believing, if you are clinging to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have received and are receiving The Lord's illustrious deliverances. David paints this for us in these verses. He wants it to stick because he wants you to be saved. Finally, in verses 19 through 22, David points our gaze to Yahweh's cosmic reign. In verses 19 through 22, David points our gaze to Yahweh's cosmic reign. The Lord's salvation from the beginning in Genesis 3.15 onward had a worldwide scope, a cosmic scope. The seed of the woman would crush the the head of the serpent, but in so doing, he would restore all that the serpent had undone. So throughout the entire Old Testament, if you're you're reading the Old Testament, you're wondering, how is the Lord going to do this? Who is he going to do it through? the answer is through his king. The Lord is going to do this through his man, his chosen king. And that man was David and his sons, the Davidic line. And this was, as I mentioned earlier, this is one of the reasons why the exile was so horrific for Israel. David's crown was lying in the dust. Israel did not have a king. And it's so hard for us to understand this. This was a painful reality for Israel. This wasn't some academic ivory tower theological debate. This was flesh and bones real. Israel reasoned like this. If the Lord's throne had merged with David's throne, and David's throne was lying in the dust, how is the Lord's throne unaffected? How is the Lord still reigning? And not just reigning, reigning for our good. To Israel, it truly did seem that they were hopeless; that the Lord had said, "I'm done. I'm done with you." And this is what Israel wrestled with in the exile. But verse 19 answers these riddles for us. How does it do this? Well, first by noting um, by noting the source of the Lord's reign. Himself, Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. Who can challenge that? Verse 19 also points to the location of this throne in the heavens. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. Who can reach that? It goes on. It describes the extent of the Lord's rule. His kingdom rules over all. Who can make an exception to that? Verse 19 answered these riddles for the people of Israel in exile. It showed them that the Lord's reign is unaffected by the affairs of men. The Lord's reign, in other words, is stable. It doesn't change. He remains king Forever. Why would David, why would Israel, why do you need to know this? Why do you need to know that the Lord's reign is stable? And that he doesn't totter on his throne? Why do you need to know that? Before becoming a minister, J.C. Ryle, he worked... In the bank that his father owned in his twenties, and decades later he wrote of uh, experience that he had during that time. He wrote, "We got up one summer 's morning with all the world before us as usual, and went to bed that same night completely and entirely ruined. His father 's bank had gone bankrupt, and they quite literally lost everything. He continued. If I had not been a Christian at that time, I do not know if I should not have committed suicide. Do you think J.C. Ryle needed stability? Or think of the German reformer Martin Luther who suffered tremendously in his lifetime. He suffered physically. He wrote one time, I nearly gave up the ghost. I I nearly died. And now bathed in blood can find no peace. What took four days to heal immediately tears open again. He suffered spiritually. He once wrote to a friend, For more than a week I have been thrown back and forth in death and hell. My whole body feels beaten. My limbs are still trembling. I almost lost Christ completely, driven about on the waves and storms of despair and blasphemy against God. He suffered politically. The second most powerful man in the world, Emperor Charles V., Put him under the ban. And this is what he wrote. Emperor Charles V. I have decided to mobilize everything against Luther. My kingdoms and dominions. My friends. My body. My blood. And my soul. Luther was surrounded by suffering on all sides. Do you think he needed stability? What about you? When you were struck with sickness what truth is going to give you stability? When death comes knocking at your door, what is going to give you stability? When providence sees fit to frown upon us as a church, what are we going to do? What happens when the politicians of America turn against Christians? What are we going to do? What truth will give your soul an anchor in day-to-day life. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Because we know the one who sits on that throne, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the author of the Hebrews says, we have this hope as an anchor For the soul that goes into the inner place behind the curtain. This is the stability that you and I need in this life. David concludes this psalm with a look at this Lord's reign. In verses 20 through 22, he says, Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, obeying the voice of His word. So the Lord's kingdom includes angels and hosts. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all places of his dominion. So the Lord's reign includes angels and hosts, redeemed creatures, and redeemed creation. And just in case he didn't forget to praise God himself, David concludes, Bless the Lord, O my soul. David in this psalm moves his gaze progressively outward. In verses 1 through 5, he barrages us personally with the Lord's sufficiencies. In verses 6 through 18, he corporately paints for us the Lord's deliverances. And in verses 19 through 22, he wants all of creation to look up and gaze at the one who reigns over all. Now, I don't know what your particular suffering is like. I don't know what struggles you have. But David in this psalm gives us a pattern to imitate. He teaches us to take our soul in hand to preach to ourselves. He teaches us to partake of the Lord's deliverances. And he tells us, look up at the one whose reign is stable and sure. And David and the scriptures and I am not saying that your struggles will automatically end because you follow some certain formula. But this psalm does teach that you are not your struggles and that they do have an end in sight. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who reigns on the throne of God. Because as our confession says, the Lord Jesus has a singular eye towards his people to dispose providentially all things for their good. So when providence bruises you, remember that providence also blesses you in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, I might add, my word, providentially give us all things? Let's pray. Now, our Father, we would pray that your Holy Spirit would bless your word, that it would bear fruit in the lives of your people, and that as a result of this, they would be strengthened and comforted, and that the Lord Jesus Christ would receive all the glory as you have appointed We pray in his holy name. Amen.